0: Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? In the Alfred Hitchcock movie that we watched for today's podcast, Notorious, the villains tried to hide uranium in a nice bottle of wine. You know, it seems like if they wanted to keep it hidden, it would have been better to use a bottle of Absinthe. At least then no one would bat an eye when it was glowing green.
1: Tim, I think you're being super critical.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear non-proliferation for a living. And I'm happy to be joined again on the podcast over Zoom with my usual co-host, Gabe.
1: Gabe, welcome back to the show. Hey, Tim, and thanks for having me back, despite the fact that I have absolutely zero qualifications to be talking about uh, nuclear weapons, or movies for that matter, or most things anyway, but it's fun to be here. Well, you're a, you're a dear
0: friend, uh, you have a keen eye for interesting things to point out in movies, and... You've been wanting to cover uh, an oldie, uh, a spy movie, a noir, uh,
1: something along these lines. It's your jam, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've dabbled in the genre. I've seen a few kind of older movies, film noir. I, I had this quest uh, several years ago to make it through the AFI like top 100 list. And I think I made it like three movies in and (laughs) then stopped. But I really like these like older classic Hollywood type things. And I'd never seen an Alfred Hitchcock movie before. So thank you for, yeah, you never forget your first time.
0: (laughs) Well, the one that we're going to talk about today is literally one of the very first examples of nuclear weapons uh, as a plot device really in any film. And this is the 1946 movie called Notorious. If you Google it, it's not the one about Biggie, the rapper. This is this is the 1946 Notorious, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. He loved staying very current. He liked seeing, the, seeing what the latest trends were in movies, whether it was a spy movie or a suspense or a thriller. And when he read the news reports, and he had a friend that we'll talk about a little bit later, who was talking about the mysterious potential of uranium, part of potentially like a bomb project in the 1940s, well, before the Manhattan Project itself was actually revealed to the public, he knew exactly what he wanted the next MacGuffin plot device to be in his movies. So you mentioned you hadn't seen any Hitchcock movies before, but you know what was your impression of uh, what Hitchcock brings to the the cinema?
1: Yeah, I mean, I well, you know we'll talk more uh, toward the end, but I I, I really liked it. Um, I'm a I'm a kind of a sucker for a lot of the, the old classics. I mean, I. I, I'm very interested in them. I can't say I've seen a lot of them, but the, this one really did it. Just something about the pacing, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about kind of the the nuclear device because it it definitely um, it added something into this movie. It, it felt like I was going to be watching this old movie, and it hmm. it almost it felt a little bit ahead of its time with this with this plot device. There It didn't make it feel quite so old.
0: And it doesn't have the the claim as the first movie with nuclear stuff in the plot. That one probably is most likely going to go to a 1945 movie that was released a year before called First Yank in Tokyo. Um, I don't recommend anyone watch it. It's incredibly racist, uh, as you would imagine from a movie about the World War II in 1945. Uh, its central point is uh, the war, of the Pacific. But they literally filmed this movie, and then when the atomic bomb was dropped um, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which an anniversary that's being acknowledged um, this this month, because uh, it took place in August in 1945, they took some footage that was released about the atomic testing and used it for the, the final scene of the movie. So it's kind of like a quick add-on thing. So that gets the first claim for kind of an imagery of nuclear weapons. Uh, but this movie does have some good stuff in it. It's got a stellar cast, uh, Cary Grant ingrid bergman and claude rains and claude rains uh, who plays the villain of this movie was nominated for an oscar for best supporting actor really great stuff have you ever seen anything else with Cary grant uh, or ingrid bergman carrie grant's also in a couple hitchcock stuff like north by northwest yeah have you seen anything else uh, from them
1: uh I, I, the one that definitely comes to mind is ingrid bergman uh, casablanca which which Excellent. is the movie I've, I've seen a number of times and really enjoyed
0: nice well, people like this movie. It made about $4.8 million in its first box office kind of domestic run, which is pretty, pretty big in 1946, and it's one of the highest uh, earning movies of that year. It gets a 98% fresh rating on, on critics, so not many people don't like it, including Roger Ebert, uh, who praised the film, said it was one of his top 10 favorite movies of all time. He added, he added it to his great movies list and called it the, quote, most elegant expression of the master's visual style. So let's get get into it and talk about why we're even covering it in the first place, because it is this movie from 1946, Spy Thriller, but it's got some fun nuke stuff in it. So as usual, spoiler warning, the movie is available on YouTube for free. Don't tell anybody, Uh, but I think it's old enough that no one's going to cause any sort of a uh, a stink if you if you do watch it but it's a it's available on on youtube and other places or you know if you find me somewhere <laughs> I'll, I'll loan you the blu-ray disc um uh, that's only that's only yeah that's only if i give it back to you that time, so. <laughs> oh yeah it might, might have to be an early uh, birthday gift or something
2: what's your angle got a job for you there's only one job that you coppers would want me for you remember a man named sebastian one of my father's friends yes He's part of the Combine that built up the German war machine in hopes to keep on going. We have to contact him. She's a perfect type for the job. Sebastian knows her. He was once in love with her. She's good at making friends with gentlemen. I don't think any of us have any illusions about her character, have we, Devlin? This is a very strange love affair. Find out what's going on inside this house, what the group around him is up to, and report to us. Sorry, what you didn't tell them, tell me. That you believe I'm nice and that I love you and I'll never change back. She's had me worried for some time, a woman of that sort. I was watching you and your friend, Mr. Devlin. Mr. Devlin doesn't mean a thing to me. I'd like to be convinced. Someone is coming. i am to kiss you. No, he'd only think we, well, no. What I want to think because it's a tough job we're on. He's never been trained for that kind of work. I've got to get you out of here.
0: So we open on in Miami, Miami, Florida, on April twenty fourth, nineteen forty six, at three twenty p.m. And we know this to the exact minute because the movie tells us. Uh, But what happens, Gabe? It's got a little. little, We're at a courthouse. We we get a little bit of a hubbub.
1: Yeah, there's there's this kind of uh, big throng of photographers and journalists who are waiting on this verdict. Um, There's a trial of of a man named John Huberman who is charged with treason against the United States and. The verdict is guilty, 20 years in prison. We don't really ever kind of hear then exactly what, you know, what he did, but it kind of gets revealed later on through his daughter. It cuts to a scene where they want to get a statement from her whether the trial was fair and if, if he was actually a Nazi spy. Hmm. It, there is some level of intrigue, and, and there's a pair of people who promise to follow her and make sure that she doesn't leave town.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems so. It's a, a year after uh, World War II is over, um, people are are doing trials. Who was in charge and who was knowing what was happening? in the Nazi party and in Germany and in other parts of the Axis, But here at the United States, yeah, exactly trying to do some cases and figure out who might've be operating from the Nazis um, perspective, you know, in the States. And it seems like this person was caught up, up, up in this. And Alicia is the daughter, Alicia Huberman. Uh, she's the one that's played by Ingrid Bergman. She is not happy about the fact that she gets asked all these questions about, about the dad. And, but you know what she does to deal with the, all of the press and the bad news and all of this she throws a party with all of her friends. They they send, uh, stay up all night drinking at their house. Uh, even one of the people that's like a friend of hers is like, hey, we're going to take this boat to Cuba tomorrow morning. Do you want to come with us? Uh, you hang out in Havana for a couple, couple of days and you'll forget all about this thing. And I think she would have done that except for the introduction of Cary Grant's character, T.R. Devlin who kind of comes out of nowhere, and they hang out for a little bit, right? And she proposes that they go outside for a picnic. And a great line in this movie, uh, Devlin, when they're walking out, says... uh,
1: Don't you need a coat? You'll do. Yeah, it's like (laughs) classic, like, old movie. You can't really pull that off these days but um, no I like the way they set it up too he's like very mysterious I, I don't think you, you kind of see the back of his head for a while and mm-hmm. then you know finally he gets revealed so there's clearly something about this dude it also like you get the feel from this party that this woman like this is not her first time hosting a party with a lot of uh, gentleman company um, if you know what I mean there is some cringeworthy stuff here it's, it's an older movie um, so yeah that's it kind of fits that paradigm of somewhat loose woman who's like hanging out with all these guys and a lot of innuendo and things like that. But but yeah, you get the sense that she's she enjoys her drink and she enjoys a good time out.
0: Speaking of, uh, instead of just going on a picnic, say you know outside or somewhere within walking distance, because again, uh, she's been drinking pretty heavily, she goes on a drunken joyride, basically a drunk driving joyride.
2: Want to go for a ride? Very much. <laughs> I'm going to drive that
0: that's understood with her friend Devlin and Devlin is nervous, but doesn't do anything. He just kind of maybe has his hand on the wheel, but that doesn't do you all that much (laughs) when you're going 60, 70 miles on a spinny road. She gets pulled over by the police. Fortunately, Devlin is able to just kind of flash his his ID badge and everything. Uh, The police just goes away. He says, I'm sorry. I didn't know who you were. And it it turns out, you know, she's, uh, she gets really upset at this because she hates cops she thinks he's a cop. He doesn't. Re- she doesn't realize he's a federal agent. She fights. She says, "Get out of the car." He doesn't get out of the car because he knows that she's probably just gonna drive away angry and drunk. He can't be angry and drunk. I imagine that's the that's the the cocktail that gets you in trouble. But he like karate chops her into unconsciousness. <laughs> it really isn't clear what happened. Yeah. But at least she's not driving drunk anymore.
1: We're we're like it's like five minutes into the movie and we're in Cringe City with this like stereotypical like. Uh, misogynistic portrayal the drunk driving and then the dude like basically attacking her in the car so but yeah we're definitely in the 19 uh we're definitely not in the 2021 no but again the
0: movie all of these scenes are very well portrayed uh in terms of like the cinematography and the acting is (laughs) really great so again the first time i watched it i was like uh this is kind of odd but the second time I watched it, I'm like it's odd but it but it's kind of in a beautiful in a way except for the credit yeah. kind of chopping into uh, consciousness that that doesn't look good in any light but as uh, Alicia wakes up uh, in her bed, um, she wakes up to an, uh, gl- next to a glass of like some awful tasting hangover cure that Devlin makes I what do you think was in that thing because it really seems to get her sobered up pretty quickly.
1: I don't know. It's probably like I, I always see these hangover cures, especially like if I'm in Europe or something and you go to small convenience stores and they have these like they look like they've been made on the cheap and they're like hangover cure. And they have like weird ingredients mm-hmm. and they're like, if you drink this, you're probably going to feel like completely you're just going to throw up right away. Uh, so maybe it was like one of those a forerunner of one of those.
0: Mm, well, it, it works. It works in well enough so that Devlin can talk to her about a job that she's got for her. Uh, which is to go down to Brazil and infiltrate a group of some ex-Nazis that are now living uh, freely in Brazil. They're working for some mysterious company called IG Farben Industries. They think that she's a good candidate to go down there and kind of infiltrate this group because someone who used to pay her father, someone that used to love her, is is working for them. And she thinks, um, I don't know if I really want to do this. He first tries to convince her about you know, tries to appeal to her patriotism. She says, you know, no, this is not at work. That's not going to work on me. But then, as as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, they they, they clearly have been following her for a little while. They play a wiretape conversation between her and her father about how she really didn't like his plans uh, to work with the Nazis and that she actually loved the United States. So this allows her to at least make a decision. Do I go on this boat cruise to Havana for a couple of days or do I go help uh, Devlin and ultimately she decides to get on the plane with him you know to go down to Brazil maybe as as penance for her father's deeds maybe she actually wants to uh, succeed at this or, or maybe she dislikes Devlin and, and and wants this uh, secret
1: king over cure I thought this was actually quite interesting because I didn't realize that the whole like Nazis going to South America was a thing that was known about so soon after mm-hmm. The war, like I thought that was something that kind of emerged like decades later. So um, I, I didn't realize that. So that was kind of interesting that it was like right after that they knew that there were these kind of like Nazi operators like heading down there. They know that they're down there. They don't know what they're up to. They know they're up to something weird.
0: And that's why, you know, why go after just some random people? They know there's some sort of effort that they're going to do that would give whatever military arm is left of the Nazi party. Uh, they would allow them to rearm and and have a significant advantage. So there must be something pretty significant here. So they're they they're on this plane, and uh, Devlin tells uh Alicia kind of uh, I guess she he should tell her at some point. He tells her right as soon as the plane about to take off that uh, his boss, this guy named Paul Prescott, told him that Alicia's father has killed himself earlier that day, well in prison with a poison capsule, and this really seems to shake up Alicia. She had mixed feelings about him, but obviously she still loved her father, and, you know, deep down. But um, she knows she has a job to do in Rio, so it seems to inspire her to not only kind of work hard, but also to get sober, right? She says that she was sober for eight days. They're, they're at a cafe in Rio, um, and, and are enjoying their time before they get their mission plans. And she seems like she, she says she really wants to change, and I guess the movie's implying that, you know, what she means by that is, I like, guess, not drinking and not partying, but Devlin doesn't seem to believe her all that
1: much, right? Yeah, no, he, he like, he says that um, he, he's just not buying it.
2: I'm practically on the wagon, that's quite a change.
1: It's a phase.
2: You don't think a woman can change? Sure not, change is fun. For a while. For a while. You've been sober for eight days. As far as I know, you've made no new conquests. Well, that's something.
1: Eight days.
2: I'm very happy there. Why won't you let me be happy?
1: Nobody's stopping you. It's so funny, like, all the circumspect stuff in this movie. Like, they never actually... They're always kind of, like, dancing around her, like, lifestyle and everything. And so it's kind of interesting to see the strong emotions about it when they're talking in such a circumspect way. Because you couldn't... There's just things you couldn't say, like back then in in a movie, right? Yeah. Uh, you couldn't portray a woman as like a drunk, you know, just like falling over. Uh, it's just a very gentle, but then the reactions are kind of implied. So it's kind of weird, like as a modern viewer, seeing these movies and you're used to this stuff being like much more like real now. And it really wasn't back then.
0: Well, an- another movie that we covered on the podcast fairly recently called On the Beach, which stars uh, Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. And even in that movie, it's kind of like a, a stern, tall, drink of water man who's going to work <laughs> for the government uh, is coming into town, and he meets with a, a a woman who the movie portrays as someone that is a bit of a, a a heavy drinker, partier, someone who likes to date, you know, that kind of situation. Like, that's the movie's morals that it, they put onto it. So, I, I would say it's interesting to do this is some sort of weird nuke movie thing, but I imagine it's just in a lot of movies in the 40s yeah. and 50s. But, This movie, it gets even kind of really rough. Like Devlin's kind of mean to her. At one point he says, yeah, I know women, they can change for a time when it's fun. And then eventually they kind of fall back. But no matter all these insults, no matter this back and forth sniping at each other, the very next scene is they drive up to a mountain and then they they kiss on top of a mountain and then they turn out they're in love and everything's fine. And they're very happily together. And everything's perfectly fine. I guess they had fallen in love, despite all of the the bickering back and forth.
1: Surprise, surprise! Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid yeah. So there's a a show that I'm watching a lot on YouTube
0: right now. Uh, I told you about it. Called, it's a Screen Rants YouTube skit show. Yeah, yeah. Pitch meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we say like, you know, and these two people start, you know, they get together and the other person goes, "Why? Why do they get together?" And the the guy goes back and goes, he was pitching the, the movie to this executive producer goes, "Because they're the two main characters."
1: <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> they're both exactly. attractive.
0: That's why they're together. Oh god. Okay, please. Yeah, receive. that makes total sense.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Anyways, it 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 does work. They make a lovely couple. Um at least until Prescott, Devlin's boss gives him the job details, which is that Alicia is going to infiltrate this local group uh, run by this guy who used to, you know, be in love with her called Alexander Sebastian. He works for this, this business group, the IG Farben group. He wants her to get in his good graces, learn more about what the Nazis are up to down there, you know, collect names, figure out what's going on, and then hopefully they can dismantle whatever they're trying to do to get the German war machine, uh, get it back up and going. They want to stop that from happening. Devlin finds out about this job and he's not too happy about it, right?
1: Yeah, no, he he's, I mean, he's clearly disturbed that he's in love with her and she's going to get sent in to, to, you know, basically fake fall in love with this guy, Alexander. So, I and I guess the whole idea is that, you know, he knows her dad through, or knew her dad through, you know, I guess there's like a Nazi- chat room or something went back i think there, they were used they to like... know each other when they were in DC, <laughs> when they were in dc together okay all right so so that's why she's kind of being used as the bait um i mean devlin tries to overrule the bosses and, and he doesn't tell the boss that he's in love with her but he puts up a pretty strong protest Prescott kind of suspects it but he's overruled and the plan's going forward and as a result i mean he like then there's like a total change in yeah. their dynamic they were all like you know, lovey-dovey, and all of a sudden, he's, like, back to being, like, the the cold, like, you know, G-Man, the Hollywood G-Man archetype.
0: You're right. Devlin's, like, really cold to her when they go back to their, like, hotel uh, apartment area. She hates cooking dinner, but she makes him, like, a chicken, and they're supposed to sit outside. He was supposed to buy a bottle of wine that he left at Prescott's office, and Alicia doesn't want the plan. She doesn't love the plan, she asked Devlin if you know if you backed her, backed her up and said that it wasn't her style anymore. But he's just so mean. He's like really, 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 really mean to yeah. her.
2: Skip it. We have other things to talk about. We've got a job. You remember a man named Sebastian? Alex Sebastian. One of my father's friends, yes. He had quite a crush on you. I wasn't very responsive. Well, he's here, the head of a large German business concern. He's part of the Combine that built up the German war machine in hopes to keep on going. Something big? has all the earmarks of being something big. We have to contact him, find out what's going on inside his house, what the group around him is up to, and report to us. Did you say anything? Maybe I wasn't the girl for such shenanigans. I figured that was up to you. Not a word for that but a little lovesick lady you left an hour ago. I told you that's the assignment. Do you want me to take the job? You're answering for yourself. I am asking you, not at people. Oh, darling, what you didn't tell them, tell me. That you believe I'm nice and that I love you, and I'll never change back. I'm waiting for your answer. What a little pal you are! Never believing me. Hmm? Not a word of faith. Just down the drain with Alicia. That's where she belongs.
0: But she still agrees to go and start the plan in the morning, and, and, and you know their chicken gets cold. Uh, you know, just like their relationship.
1: The the interesting thing, so the with the bottle of wine that he leaves at the at Prescott's office or whatever. There's there's a lot of appearances of bottles of wine mm-hmm. in this movie. We'll get into more later, and like alcohol in general, it plays this big role in this movie. But even like like wine bottles, that was like the first time we really see it, and uh, it's just like I don't know if this is I haven't seen any Hitchcock, so I don't know if this is part of a thing. But there was just like this focus on this one object, and it kind of starts in that scene. After this little bit of a, a bump in the relationship, they decide
0: to start uh, this connection, try to get this. Reforge his connection between Alicia and Sebastian, and they figure out that he's riding horses the next day. So, Devlin and Alicia try to get his attention. He doesn't get, he doesn't notice her, or doesn't remember her. So, what does Devlin do? He like kicks her horse, which causes the horse to like run off. And then, <laughs> Sebastian, because he's a nice guy apparently, uh, screws to go to save her, and it's, it works. Um, fortunately, Alicia is not killed by a runaway horse, but at least it it causes him to save her, and then Sebastian takes her out to dinner, and then they bond over their dislike of American police and American secret agents. (laughs) But the thing is is that Sebastian knows of Devlin, because he saw her with him. So she just says that he's a a guy she met on the plane, and he's, like, obsessed with her. And then he's like, okay, all right, well, I, I, have a, I have a little bit of competition now. It's kind of an f- interesting little love triangle going on there.
1: The uh, the interesting part of that, too, is, I mean, like, Cary Grant is, like, you know, very attractive, like, leading man. He's probably at, like, peak attractiveness in his life in this movie. And um, I forget the name of the Claude, guy who plays. Claude so. Rains. Yeah, Claude Rains. Like, he's a he's little past his prime here. I mean, so bad. he's, like, an older dude, like... Um, it's just kind of weird. Um, uh, he must be like in his fifties or something in this movie, late fifties, maybe. And it just kind of sets up this weird, maybe, I, maybe he's, maybe that's part of the idea that he's like, he's getting this ego bump from this younger woman, like chasing him around instead of this young guy. I just thought that would, I don't know, that just kind of looked kind of strange to me in this. Well, after
0: they're done with their horseplay, um, he invites her over, uh, to a dinner party. Um, over at his house and you know again sorry guys at this point you're listening to this podcast we're about 25 minutes in and you're wondering when are we getting to the nuke stuff well here we are so they're they're at the party and Alicia meets all of these people that she knows are are member of like, secret Nazis down there that's part of this farbing group and this group includes this very mysterious person he's a scientist his name is Dr. Anderson and it turns out he's a, a Nazi scientist doing experiments at the house under a false name, one of the guests at the dinner party has a like a, a little bit of a thing where he sees like a bottle of wine that's just kind of sitting out. No one's you know drinking it or anything. It's 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 capped. He he points at it and like kind of like panics. and makes this like a little bit of a scene, and everyone says you know calm down. His name was Emil. He uh, points at the bottle and everything, and he freaks out, and they, they get him aside, and they, they apologize for everything, and then when the party's over, it turns out, like, they're gonna, they've all agreed, like, these members of the secret cadre of, of ex-Nazis are gonna, like, kill Emil for yeah, this yeah. outburst, because they don't, yeah. they don't uh, suffer no fool uh, as part of their secret plans.
2: I'm afraid, gentlemen, that something must be done about Emil. I don't know. It was an understandable slip. Man was tired. Now... Nah. It's a very dangerous slip. There'll be more, if you permit them. That's bad. It's very bad. I think, gentlemen, you can leave it to me to find some way. When you drive up to Petropolis, the road winds quite a bit. It is very high. There are some very
1: awkward turns.
0: Of course, they did leave the bottle, like, sitting there. But but Alicia notices it. She notices what's happening.
1: Even this was a little bit difficult to follow exactly what was going on here. And, like, why did this outburst bother them so much? I think it's clear at the end that they're going to kill him. This reminded me— Do you remember when we were doing Some of All Fears? This reminded me, like, there was that group of Nazis, and, like, one of them is oh, yeah. once out of the plan, and he gets killed on the way out. I was like, look at this. Like, they stole it from Notorious. <laughs> he gets killed by the, the guy, the uh, the real big dude there.
0: Yeah. Um, her heft, I think his name is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very, it's very very similar here. Um, he, They make him, they say they're going to kill him and make it look like a car accident. They clearly mean business, but they are also something about this bottle of wine freaked them out and they didn't want to draw any attention to it. but uh Devlin and Alicia they meet up again. She reports about the bottle and how you know weird this is and Devlin's thinking this could be something here, but he's also super jealous right He even though the plan is that she gets close to him close to Sebastian, he's really upset about this so upset. So they meet up at a horse race and Sebastian sees these t- Devlin and her together. And he comes up to her and basically says, "Like, look, you're gonna have to prove to me that this Devlin guy means nothing to you. How are you gonna do that? I'm gonna propose to you." Yeah. <laughs> you know, she she goes then reports back to the her, to 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 Prescott and to Devlin and says, "Like, what should I do about this?" And Devlin's not happy about it. Neither is Alicia. Prescott tells her to accept the offer. They're gonna have a little kind of private wedding the following week, and she gets married you know, she gets married, she moves into the guy's house and she's looking for something about the bottle, right? She's trying to figure out where the wine cellar is kept. And I actually, this is—it took me a couple of of the second viewing of the movie to understand what was happening here. But because at first she just starts complaining that the closets in the house, like she's like being followed by the, the butler and says that the closets are too small and she's looking for a big closet.
2: Oh, this isn't very large. I'll need more room.
0: And she just starts going through all the whole house, like opening the closets, because she wants to see where is the wine cellar? Where are the bottles kept? Who has keys to everything? And then she finds out that um, one, that doctor Anderson is there. She hears overhears him saying that the work is complete.
2: Oh, you want a report? A written report. Where are my friends, my work is done. You've been successful. Yes.
0: And that he you know he can move on to something else now. She eventually finds out that, that there's a wine cellar, but the only person that has a key to the wine cellar is Sebastian, and he keeps the key on him. She now knows that she needs to get that key. That's where the mysterious wine cellar is. How does she get the key? Because Devlin has an idea of how uh, she can get the time to get the key and then to distract uh, Sebastian.
1: Yeah, so uh, Devlin convinces her to convince Sebastian to throw this big party so that they can get the key. There's this, like, elaborate scene where she... I forget exactly what happens in it, but she is kind of, like, taking the key off of his keychain, like while he's there and has Mm -hmm. to like do this elaborate dance and like drop it on the floor as he comes in and um, she's able to get the key at the end and they go down into the wine cellar where they're going to like poke around together.
0: It's a big time crunch because they know they have to get down to the wine cellar and be done with it by the time that the party runs out of champagne. So it's kind of a bit of a ticking clock there.
1: Well, and this was another use of the wine bottle. Like, obviously, there's the wine bottles in the wine cellar, but there was this like, very suspenseful focus on, yeah, the waiter's area where they have the bottles of champagne mm-hmm. and they're like pouring champagne. And, you know, when are they going to run out and this kind of thing? They do get down in the cellar and uh, Devlin accidentally knocks over one of the bottles and. It does not contain wine, hmm. but contains some sort of strange sand looking material, you know, metal or material.
0: Yeah, I know you have a, a background in geology. Um, given that it was a black and white movie from 1946, what would you have, you know, just using your analysis there, maybe a magnifying glass or an enhanced screen
1: (laughs) situation, what did it look like to you? I don't know. It looked like, like, uh, just like gravel or something. They must have used something. This is like before the, if this were modern Hollywood, it'd be like glowing and there'd be like, yeah, weird. There'd be some like special effect going on, but this is, you know, this is low budget. You're there to see Cary Grant. You're not there to see the (laughs) world.
0: Well, it it turns out it is uranium ore.
1: I think you can be very proud of yourself,
2: Mrs. Uh, Sebastian. That sand that Devlin brought in shows uranium ore. So now we know what we're driving at. And your job from now on will be to try to help us find out where that sand comes from. The location of the uranium deposit is of vast importance, and we're putting quite a few people on it. But I think uh, you'll be a great help. All
0: right. But uh, they, we want to find out, you know, not only, you know, where did this ore come from? They want to know, like, where is this uranium deposit? You know, apparently somewhere in Brazil. They want to know how they're getting it and what, the, you know, what they're up to. It's hard to tell in the movie. And we'll get to this at the very end. Whether this is like enriched uranium ore, meaning like, if you give, if you go to the, uh, to a mine and you break a rock and you get some uranium, right? The amount of actual elements of that uranium that you could use in an atomic bomb or in a nuclear power plant, it's way less than like half a percent. It's very rare when you think about the total types of you know elements of your of uranium. You have to take that uranium, you mine it, uh, you mill it down into a powder, or you know, then you turn it into a gas or you do different things to then take all the stuff you don't want away and just leave the heavier element that you do want. You know, you could do a couple of different ways you go about and do that. Uranium enrichment facilities you can do with electricity. You can use lasers if you want to. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. But it just seems like this is just like uranium ore. Like filings of uranium ore or something. It's hard to tell if it's like enriched or not enriched. But either way, you're it's, it's safe to touch. It's perfectly fine to grab and touch and everything. We find out that it's uranium ore. They kind of somewhat put a bottle back together, right? They like take some of the ore.
1: He that was It was also very strange. He like finds another random bottle somewhere that He thought matched the wine, and they put the the ore back in. Yeah, not the same year, right? But but he thought it was like a good enough match, and that nobody would notice. And well, it turns out they didn't do a good enough job. But we'll get to that later. But in the meantime, like time's up, Sebastian comes down to the cellar and sees them there, and they cover up their spying by they start kissing each other and making it seem like they had ducked away. Um, And this, you know, allows devlin to kind of leave they have a very gentlemanly exchange uh where you know sebastian is like you know politely invites him to leave the party for making out with his wife for what it's worth as an apology your wife is telling the truth i knew her before you loved her before you but
2: i wasn't as lucky as you sorry alicia please go good night yeah
0: it's very much like she says you know no, it's not what you think. He kissed me, and I told him I didn't want it. And he goes, yes, I do apologize. I, I did come here, and I did drink too much, but I now, no. I now realize that she doesn't love me. I will leave. Take my good day, sir. And it's yeah, like, exactly. no, no, no. You, you assaulted this poor woman. Call the police.
1: I know. I, well, again, this is not 2021 in this movie, so they get away with this. But Sebastian is is it's
0: clearly still a little suspicious. He looks at his key ring, and the key is missing.
1: They messed up. They forgot to put the key back. Uh, but then she puts it back in the middle of night, and in the morning he notices that it's back on the chain. So they're gonna have a time that's not off the chain <laughs> because he uh, now he knows that she's like uh, betrayed her, betrayed him, and so he then digs even further, goes back down to the uh, wine cellar, and notices that the date on the bottle that. That Devlin tried to, to fix is, is actually wrong. Uh, it doesn't match the other one. So, you know, he, he sees that kind of the cap is put on improperly. Tino's like something's not good. So he goes to his mother, which is also weird because, like, she must be like really old because he's already pretty old, but she's kind of like spry and like the mastermind. She shows up earlier in the movie uh, as kind of suspicious about about Alicia and, and this whole thing. You know, mother knows best, uh, and in this case, that they need to murder murder his wife with a slow illness and death. Exactly. They, they poison her slowly uh, through, like,
0: tea and food, and she's, like, real weak. There's a pretty good scene in this movie where she is, you know, they they they're going to probably give her the last bit of poison that will like knock her, you know, uh into the afterlife. She gets interrupted by Dr. Anderson who comes by and says, "Hey, I'm going to leave now. I'm going to go hang out somewhere else here and and uh and and finish my work or whatever." And he goes to like drink her tea and they all
1: go, no, 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 no. Yeah, and then she and she knows. Do you think they were using the same uranium as the poison? Like oh. they were they just like, or was it too valuable? They needed it, um, but it's like, you know. Well, there are
0: there are a lot of um, very sad examples of the Russians poisoning people in their tea with polonium, which okay. is not uranium, but it's because um, uranium looked, Plutonium is real bad if you inhale it or get it into your body. Um, It's not that bad if you hold it because it's an alpha emitter, alpha particles which you can block by your skin. Uranium is similar. Uranium filings are not good things to consume because they're they're like toxic, and but they're not enough radioactivity off of just pure uranium that would really you know do you in. It's not good stuff at all to be to be fair. But, like, polonium is really bad. Like, polonium is very radioactive, and, and, you know, several people in – the Russians have gotten quite good at at, um, assassinating
1: people, and sometimes in their tea. There's, like – I got to say, like, when it comes to, like, sinister methods of murder – like poisoning is like well at the top because like anybody can shoot somebody or stab somebody but like you're gonna if you're getting into poisoning that's like a whole nother level of like planning and sinister for me that worked very well with this other character it's like of making her like super evil in this movie
0: yeah and it's it's rough because in this scene that I, i really thought was well done you know she's You see a lot of shots of, like, her when she realizes what's happening. She wants to get away. She wants to call the police. She wants to get out. But the the poison from from earlier is starting to take effect. And there's lots of shots from, like, her perspective. And she sees the mother and Sebastian. But it's, like, hazy silhouettes. And they almost look like demonic figures. Um, Very, very good stuff here. And she gets bedridden, right? She's, She's sick there. Um, she, no one's coming to see her. They, they say they're going to bring a doctor, but they don't actually bring a doctor. I think they're just basically going to wait it out until she passes away. And and Devlin himself too, right? He's, he's kind of upset by the whole thing. He doesn't know what's happening to her. He just knows that she kind of like disappeared and maybe wonders whether or not she's uh, ignoring him. He's about to be transferred to Spain kind of away from the mission.
1: So we thought that they were going to be separated, that they were done. And she was like, you know, all, she thinks she's all on her own, that Devlin's gone. But guess what? He 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 decides that he's gonna uh, he's gonna come back and, and try to rescue her and find out what's going on. He
0: found out that she was at the in the
1: end his cup of tea. <laughs> they, i knew i knew we'd have a pun uh i thought we were gonna have a, a pun about horsing around earlier but you missed that one i think i did uh, say it
0: but you didn't realize okay. it because I just, okay. said, I just
1: say so many of them uh, i just tune them out um but no but he so he comes to the mansion he kind of like forces his way in and the butler is like very hesitant and she's kind of sneaking around i love this last scene there's so much like tension yep but it's it's just it's just not, it's not overdone. It's just the right amount. And he goes up into the room. He realizes that she's very sick. She's basically dying in his arms in her bedroom. She tells him that the Uraniumor is from the Amores Mountains, which I guess she picked up, you know, from one of the Nazis. Basically what, what he does is he drags her out of the house, right with Sebastian there. And because Sebastian's Nazi friends are there, he knows that if Sebastian makes a scene about it, the Nazi friends are going to, like, wise up that something's going on, and they're going to do to him what they did to the other Nazi dude. So he's basically, like, forced into letting Devlin take her out.
0: And- Sebastian never told his Nazi friends that that something's wrong with uh, uranium. He kind of kept that, you know, to himself because he doesn't want to admit that, oh, yeah, I did accidentally marry
1: a uh, secret agent. Yeah. And that was the mother. The mother was very like clear about that. That they they couldn't find out. There's this great scene where he's just they, the the two men, like Sebastian and Devlin. These two rivals are just kind of staring at each other, and like Devlin knows that he's got Sebastian. Sebastian's like no, like knows what uh, Devlin's doing, and that he can't do anything about it. And basically. They Devlin brings Alicia out of the house into the car. Basically, if if he lets Sebastian uh, come with them to go to the hospital, the whole story will kind of check out. Mm-hmm. But instead, he basically just leaves him there and takes her. And so now the Nazis are like, Who is this dude that just took your wife? They call him in to like have a, a quote unquote talk with him.
0: Poor, poor little Sebastian.
1: So bye-bye, little Sebastian. <laughs> So end of
0: movie, one of these kind of mi- movies from this time period, the disco, like, and over, and nothing, you know, really sudden, and we don't really learn what happens to Alicia, but we kind of would probably assume that she's going to be okay. Um, we don't really know what happens to the U anymore, but it'll probably get seized by the, the U.S. government or the Brazilian government, and we're not really sure what happens to the Nazi group, but I'm sure they're, you know, probably going to get shut down, and probably, uh, yeah, you're right, Sebastian's not going to have a good time uh, anymore. So that that's the movie. Uh, I thought again, it's it's a like a what is it like a uh, like an hour and a half or so. Um, pretty pretty brisk. Does have some nuclear stuff in it, so I'd love to get into that before we kind of do our parking lot uh, movie discussion here. And there's really only one big thing, right? It's the even though this is a, a a spy movie and a love story, you know, the uranium ore was really a key element of this plot. And again, the first time it was used, you know, in, in a in a Hollywood movie to a big degree. Here's where here's the story behind this. There's there's a lot of, as there is with Hitchcock. One, I'll just say this to start off here. You know, there's a lot of rumors about Hitchcock about him being quite an awful individual when it comes to his personal life. Uh, he was awful to a lot of his female stars. Uh, whatever he can do to get the shot. So I'm not going to praise the the man at all. But I'm going to tell a, a, an interesting story about him. You know, as from someone who you know is this icon uh, in in Hollywood. So there's a lot of myth there, and there's also some some truth that maybe. Still interesting, but not as kind of the big... I'll tell you the, the myth. The myth is, is that Hitchcock wanted to do this thing in his story because he wanted to have something in the movie to have the romantic pairing of Grant and Bergman um, have a box office bang comparable to an atomic blast, is what Kiz kind of was saying. <laughs> so, he again, this movie came out on August fifteenth, nineteen 1946. So the the United States bombed Hiroshima with an atomic bomb, literally almost one year prior in 1945, but the movie was really far, you know, into production. You know, the production process, I don't think it had started filming, but it was close kind of when when that did happen. Here's what his story is. He said that, you know, in the early 1940s, you know, uranium was known, but we didn't really know everything that it could do. the Manhattan Project was very much not in, in people's mind and not in the press. He wanted this as a plot device. He says that he knew about the Manhattan Project because he had a writer friend who worked for the New Yorker magazine. And he and others um, that he had, you know, had talked to said that there was this like secret Manhattan Project activity that was being taken place, and he just knew that this was gonna be a big deal. He had trouble convincing his screenwriter that was actually writing the movie for him, because um, he didn't understand what like the logic of this plot device was and why anyone would would care about it. Like, why would the US government you know care about any of this? He convinced his his screenwriter to go talk to a physicist at Caltech, uh, named Robert Milken. And to learn more details about what uranium was, what it looked like, what it could be for. And even that guy said, you know, Hey, back off, uh, the government's not too happy about people talking about uranium anymore. There was a lot of shutdown on in the press about you know uranium sciences and in nuclear physics, so people weren't supposed to be talking about this at the moment. But he's like, "Oh, I'm going to go ahead and do this." And then Hitchcock claimed that he was he thought he knew just knew that this was going to be something that was going to be for the military uh, military purpose. And he later claimed that he was followed for three months uh, by the FBI um, after the film's release. And here's what he said uh, about this: He says that uh, you know his producer asked. What in the name of goodness is that? And Hitchcock said, this is uranium. It's the thing they're going to make an atomic bomb with. And then the producer asked, well, what is the atomic bomb? And, and he said, Hitchcock says, well, you know, you must, you must remember, in 1944, a year before Hiroshima, I only had one clue, a writer friend of mine That told me that scientists were working on a secret project somewhere in New Mexico. It was so secret that once they went um, into the plant, they never emerged again. I was also aware that the Germans were conducting experiments with heavy water in Norway. So these clues brought me to the uranium MacGuffin. The producer was skeptical and he felt that it was absurd to use the idea of atomic bombs as the basis for our story. I told him that it wasn't the basis for the story, only the MacGuffin, and I explained there was no need to attach too much importance to it. So, very interesting. According to this story, it makes it look like, like an atomic prophet who knew that uranium was going to be so important for anyone else into the public. Before I get into the truth of that story, what do you make of
1: all of that? It's interesting because sometimes the things that are like right in front of us at the time and seem obvious later on that they're going to become big um, you know, don't necessarily... Register until um until well after the fact, and some people are good about kind of seeing it. You know, I mean, you see this everywhere in terms of technology and the internet, and just people have ideas, and you're like, oh, that that was quite obvious. And I, you know, it, it makes me wonder if this is one of them that th- this sensational aspect of all the stuff relate you know relating to the atomic bomb and just how. It's it's just like almost un, it's uncomprehendable for most people, like the power and and the, the you know, Manhattan Project and the physics behind it and the uh, the power behind the bomb and all that. So he must yeah, I mean it's kinda cool that he that he seems to have called it a little bit.
0: So I and I have a, a copy of something I bought on eBay from the Saturday Evening Post. Remember that gigantic magazine? Yeah, Uh, yeah. So this is a gigantic magazine. The cover is funny. It's like a a little girl in a hat eating an apple and the cover. But if you go open up into one of the pages in the middle, there's a story called The Atom Gives Up Its Secrets. And it's written by someone named William Lawrence, who in 19... this, This issue came out in September 1940. So, you know, five years before the Atomic Bomb Project was completed. But in that story, you know, Lawrence came up with um, you know really interesting reporting because at the time it was public information that there was this breaking science uh, field of, of you know atomic physics and they knew that you can do uh, uranium you can use uranium to do fission and if you do fission it releases you know energy that was holding the atom together and they were just trying to figure out well if there was a way to do that in a sustained way you can produce heat which is producing power or you could do it in a really quick way and you produce a bomb. And people in science fiction had talked about this. H.G. Wells had a story several, you know, almost a decade or so before this um, about, you know, atomic bombs and things. So it it wasn't like the nuclear age appeared out of nowhere. And the Manhattan Project was the first anyone ever talked about this. Mm -hmm. It was out there. But really, he was the first to ever jump on this as a, you know, a nuclear plot device and everything. And uh, here's here's a little bit more information. You know, we learn from a couple of different... Sources that Hitchcock, you know, he exaggerated quite a bit. According to a very famous biography of him called The Dark Side of Genius, it says that by the time Notorious actually began filming in October of 1945, Hitchcock made one major final trip to London because he wanted to... You know, take his script and meet with some people that he was doing screen testing for in New York. But he he went to London, and, and several of these people were famous German refugees that he casted ultimately in the movie. And he wanted to have you know some conversations with them and find out you know what was going on. And again, this is after uh, the atomic bombings of Japan. Apparently, based on these conversations he was having with German contacts and the accounts that started to flood the press, Hitchcock ultimately added you know pretty late in the script. The atomic MacGuffin. It wasn't like early script uh, versions. It was kind of For added sure. near yeah. the end. And all evidence suggests that the uranium was added after the fact. After the atomic bombs dropped, uh, it wasn't like he, he had written it into it and then it happened. Yeah. And apparently he, he told the producer, look... If you don't like uranium, let's just make it like industrial diamonds, which the Germans need you know, cut their tools with or something. He later claimed that he told a movie executive um, who objected to the screenplay on the grounds of implausibility. He said, you were wrong to attach any importance to the MacGuffin. Victorious was simply the story of a man in love with a girl who, in the course of her official duties, had to go to bed with another man and even to marry him. That's the story. So I guess he's kind of talking to me a little bit here. I shouldn't care all that much about the Iranian plot or yeah. any of this, but it is a fascinating thing that it's gotten used as a MacGuffin. And nowadays, you and I watched a couple of these uh, Mission Impossible movies where the nuke stuff is so irrelevant to the plot. It's just the thing to yeah. drive Tom Cruise to jump off or climb a building or whatever. But in this movie, they really kind of kick kickstarted here.
1: Well, I, I guess like my question to you is how did you view the, the whole use of the uranium? I mean, if you had to go imagine like, you know, Tim Westmeyer, you were born at this time, like Tim's going to the movies in 1946, <laughs> he got, he's, he's interested in this Manhattan project. I mean, would you see that? And would that like add something to this for you in a way that maybe another, the Diamond MacGuffin might not, hmm. you know, the idea of,
0: well, this is a national security risk. And that's why we're committing resources and trying to like almost, you know, maybe the government, maybe the G-Men didn't really care all that much about, you know, Alicia and and her well-being. But they were willing to sacrifice her into this situation because of the fact that there was some sort of national security risk, some sort of German rearmament. And the idea of like, well, diamonds would allow them to use them as tools to cut better. Well, I mean, the war is over. Like, what do you... What do you mean? But if maybe this is something that allows them, to, a small group, to get an atomic bomb, and now they build a bunch of them, and that is that a mission, you know, to, that can cause something to happen that would disrupt the the status quo a year after the war had ended. At least that is something that I think raises the stakes a bit for their mission, which I which I enjoyed. It's a lot there to have to like stretch to understand where the risk would really be if that whatever this Doctor Anderson is doing, they never say. They keep that very vague. Is he enriching uranium? Right. I think at one point they mentioned that one of them that was working for them was like a a metallurgist. So maybe they were able to take the refined uranium and smelt it and get it into a core of a uranium bomb. So maybe that's part of what they were planning on doing. It's just not really – they're not really clear about any of it. But if it is just uranium ore that's not enriched, okay. There's a lot of things you have to do with that first, right? You have to do uh, quite a bit of things to shape the uranium core to build the the gun-type um, bomb design um, or uranium, um, you know, version of a of an implosion bomb. You have to test the bomb uh, to make sure it works because even though the United States never tested, you know, their atomic bomb. Uh, that was uranium-based, they, they they knew that it was going to work, but maybe, I don't know why these scientists would necessarily know that all of it was going to work. And even if they had enriched the uranium, because they say, well, it was mined from, you know, this, this, this place, this, these mountains, you know, maybe they just didn't understand the, the screenwriters or they thought that filmgoers didn't understand that you can't just take, like, a chunk of rock from a mountain and put it into a bomb and it will explode. You have to do things to get to that refined level in order to be able to actually use it as a weapon, but if they did know that, you know, it's a lot harder to hide an enrichment facility inside of your basement. These take a lot of space. Um, they take a lot of power. They take a lot, a lot of time at that particular period. The Manhattan Project is people always say in the United States that we're going to need a Manhattan Project to do this, a Manhattan Project to do that. Right. You know, there's a reason for that. It's because the Manhattan Project was like a national level. <laughs> You know, manufacturing effort that took hundreds hundreds of thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars um, in the national focus to get this thing done. You can't do this with any number of um, Nazis hiding out in Brazil.
1: We need a a Manhattan Project to free Britney Spears, I think.
0: Yeah, that's the next one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that'll be our next one.
0: It's either a moonshot or a a Manhattan Project. Yeah, exactly. It's those two. It is funny, though, he mentions uh, Hitchcock in this kind of original story I told about. A heavy water plant in Norway that the Germans were, were using. We talked about all that on the most recent episode of our podcast, where we talked about the heavy water war and the sabotage effort that the Norwegian resistance fighters did against the Germans who were using this heavy water plant, which you can use to um, enrich uranium. But there's no discussion of any of this, you know, in the movie. But it, it, it works. You know, it's it's unclear. You know, I will say this: getting access to fissile material is really the hardest part of building an atomic bomb these days. It's, and it's fortunately very difficult to do, but it was one that Germany was having trouble overcoming, but. Access to uranium was not the hardest part of the bomb project. It was it was getting it enriched and knowing what they needed to do to actually make it into a bomb. But anyways, it's an interesting plot device. I think it's it's worth it's worth it, and I'm glad they didn't do something otherwise. Which is now us starting to get into our you know parking lot movie discussion. That's non nuclear focused. It's when you and I used to go to movies um either when we were kids or these days uh, we would go see a film and talk about it in the parking lot when it was over. Although you
1: you went to you just went to your first uh, yeah. in person movie recently.
0: I saw uh, Black Widow. It was pretty fun with a former, awesome.
1: former podcast guest and, and friend of ours, uh, Kevin. I, I was I was invited, but I, I broke my arm the, the day before and wasn't really feeling like going to a movie. So yeah, yeah,
0: and I didn't want to. Uh, I'm glad you didn't elbow your way in. Um, what I mean, what do you think? Do you think that if this was Diamonds, you think you would enjoy the movie as much? I
1: think it's it's effective. It it just it brings it to another level. What I'm a little surprised by to hear Hitchcock saying, oh, it could have been diamonds, it could have been anything. There was clearly something there because they go... He takes great care to show the ore, and the fact that it's being hidden in wine bottle... I mean, if the story was really just about their relationship, they didn't need to show this ore at all. They could have, like, open up a room, and there'd be plans there, and they'd know. Yeah. Um, There was something about showing that. And so it's weird that they they like didn't show any more of what was going on. Like I would have expected to see an actual bomb. I think that would have been cool if we saw like Uh. a bomb being built. um, Because if there's any critique there on the use of it, it's it's that. Um, I like your theory about, you know, it it raising the stakes um, and making it seem more plausible that essentially this woman is being like prostituted to, to be a spy. By the U.S. government, no less. Uh, I mean, that's some like kind of crazy stuff for the time when you think about it. And maybe this is what allowed people to kind of get over that cognitive dissonance. But you know, maybe if you had the diamonds, you get a different conclusion that uh, maybe people are pretty cold and heartless and are willing to essentially use this woman as bait over nothing, over something less valuable. So I think it definitely it definitely plays an important part in this movie. They didn't like lean into it the way that I thought they would. That's kind of my thought. What do you What do you think about it? So let me let me tell her an interesting story really
0: quickly. Even before you were the co host of this podcast, you've been on this before when we talked about the uh, I think it was the City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, why don't you do a, yes. a, a quick thirty second description of the plot because it is somewhat relevant because it is it's a world where the Germans were able to actually build an atomic bomb. So do that like do like a twenty second version of that before I, I tell my story. So you can talk about the st- Star Trek bit of this.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek episode. uh, You know, the the Nazis. um, It's a it's a world in which then uh, there's a woman who is a nuclear activist and she gets murdered. um, And uh, by her not getting murdered, there's an alternate timeline where she doesn't get murdered, and as a result, the Germans are able to like make the bomb and and dominate the world. Kirk and Spock go back in time and have to basically. see what's going on and fix the timeline. And to do that, there's a scene where Kirk basically has to allow this woman to get murdered. And it's like very painful and traumatic.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, another story of a, of a a dashing, you know, hero character kind of letting a woman, um, you know, go to harm in order to, for some sort of greater good. Well, in in real life, there was a situation where the United States and um, its allies thought that the Germans were very close to building an atomic bomb and there was that was one of the main big impetuses for the Manhattan Project. To, you know, moving forward, a lot of the scientists involved were were saying that you know I would I wouldn't have done this unless the fact that the Germans were getting close to building an atomic bomb of their own. Well, it turns out that like when we you know the the, the United States um, and and the Allies you know won World War II and they started to take some of the German scientists you know to the states or to Britain and interviewed them about where. They were with their project, and we learned more about kind of where that project was overall. It wasn't very far along at all. They were they were really stuck on figuring out one how they were going to do the enrichment, how the science of everything worked. They had a Nobel Prize winner in, in, in the version of Heisenberg, but they couldn't figure out what to do next. And one of the small experiments that they did was they went in secretly into a beer and wine cellar down in in Berlin. Um, a scientist, you know, started this. Little reactor that they were trying to build. It was a converted potato and beer cellar in the in, in this particular uh, like a church. That's funny. They were in they were down here and they called it the atomic cellar. And it was a reactor, and it wasn't the kind of reactor that the United States or the the British used to to make fissile material. But it was kind of like imagine at Christmas time, and you have a string of uh, popcorn. You know, where you take your popcorn, you pop it, and you put it on a string? like Dangling strings like that, so like beads of uranium cubes, and if they're aligned, you know, closely together, you actually can generate heat and kind of have a bit of a a reactive system. Well, the Germans were playing around with this, and it's really interesting science, but it's not like the next thing you need to do to build uh, uranium-based weapon, but it's like they're still trying to figure out, well, what what levels of uranium fission needs to take place, and they were at this very basic level— well, again, they found this in a beer cellar um, down at the bottom of a church. So maybe, I don't know if they knew this story, but we make fun of the fact that they were hiding this uranium uh, in a wine cellar. But hey, there's some there's some truth to this. There was some German Nazi uh, uranium experiments being done in a in a cellar where alcohol was kept. I, I will say this. I wonder why it was kept in a wine bottle. I know why, because it's really cool. But you keep it in a wine bottle, why do you just keep it in a box somewhere and they'll never find it? Like, if he just put that, if he didn't put yeah. it in his wine collection,
2: but he put it, like,
0: in a closet box, like, in a shoe box, they never would have found it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, like, if it it's the, the whole theme with all the drinking, and, like, clearly alcohol, like, runs through the movie, but it's, um, yeah, it, I agree with you. It'll, it was a little bit silly.
0: But it, it, as a movie, it worked, I think, tremendously. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I even jo- enjoyed the Nazis in Brazil kind of subplot. You know this is definitely a thing, but I, I always just thought it was a joke because, you know, I know you like to watch the TV show Archer too, uh, but you know Doctor Krieger's character uh, was was definitely I think he was supposed to be a clone of Hitler but born and raised in um, in Brazil. I always thought it was funny, but I never knew it was like this level of of intensity. Um, I did enjoy it. The one the one question I have left for you is: Do you think this movie could be remade today? And if it was, what do you think would replace the
1: uranium in a bottle? I mean, it could be remade. <laughs> like to me the story is all about th- there's like this brinksmanship going on about how far are they willing to go like how far is is devlin willing to go to like you know serve his his country and and you know basically put the woman he loves into the arms of another man how how far is she willing to go to like prove that she can do this task even though doing it is like you know, requires her to go to some great lengths. So, I think there's still stuff that can be said about this that maybe the movie doesn't necessarily say, um, or that that we could. You know, find more to say today. Um, so yeah, I, I think it could probably not a good idea to touch a Hitchcock uh, movie though. Maybe you could do it in some other form, spin-off, maybe a sequel. Uh, <laughs> their grandkids or something. I don't know. It's probably a bad idea. Uh, what what would the what would the MacGuffin be? Um, I don't know, like AI, maybe maybe an AI that, that they're working on that's going to like become sentient and is going to like trigger this whole thing. And the whole thing, like the, they've gotten so uh, big in terms of like plots and plans to destroy the world. But um, yeah, maybe there'd be something about an AI that was hidden in a, a USB that's in some like uh, whiskey bottles or something like that. That could be the, <laughs> that could be the, the new version of that. I like don't that. please don't remake this movie, Hollywood. Like it's as good as it is. Mm-hmm. Even with all the cringe stuff, it's it's still good. All
0: right, so let's wrap up here. Let's do our rating system. Uh, this is where we re rate whatever we are are talking about here on a scale of one to five, with five being you know amazing, terrific, one being the worst. Uh, let's do that. We always do you know use one to five, but I always like to tailor the rating system because you know look like if we're gonna get super critical about the content, I might as well. Uh, raise my game when it comes to the 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 system itself the metrics so I've crunched the numbers here I've talked with Prescott and uh, he says that we should use um, a scale of one out of five bottles of uranium ore on the wall because if you have just one bottle of uranium ore on the wall and you take one down and pass it around and and it happens to fall you're out of luck but if you got five You know, you can take one down, pass it around, and it will be an enriching experience for all involved.
1: Now I know what we're going to be seeing on our next road trip, Tim. That's great.
0: I love it. Uh, Well, let me me go real quick here. I think uh, I'll give this four bottles of uranium ore on the wall. I think when I first watched it, I gave it a three, 3.5. I think it's a four. Completely acknowledging all of the really difficult these days, uh, you know, gender dynamics and some of the, the other kind of plot points and stuff. The movie itself is really interesting and gripping from kind of beginning to end, even without the nuclear stuff, which I think, in in a weird way, it kind of does add uh, some very positive stuff to to the film. Um, I think the performances are really good. There are some scenes that are very gripping. I would love to see this movie in the theater because I think... These kind of movies really, it's easy to drift your eyes kind of away from a screen of this kind of like somewhat slower black and white movies. I think I'd love to sit down and just watch this like on the big screen. I can get the kind of more experience that it was like to see this as people saw it for the first time. So maybe one of these days we can do that. But I I would say I, I actually give it a four. I really did enjoy it. I recommend it to people. It's
1: for free online. There's no reason why someone shouldn't see this, Gabe. Um, I, I mean, can I have a, can I do a half bottle, like a bottle that's like because it's been smashed in half because somebody's been drinking too much uranium wine. Maybe just... maybe it's
0: one of those small bottles you get
1: at like a hotel uh, refrigerator. <laughs> just a little bit of uranium wine, not a lot of yeah. uranium or wine. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do four and a half. I totally agree with you. There's a lot of stuff in here that is not cool, like today. Um, but I think if you look if you look at kind of the technical, just like the film, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not a filmmaking expert by any means. I read a little bit about kind of the shots and everything, but it was clear while I was watching it as a layperson that I was seeing something special, different, like ahead of its time um, from some of the camera angles and some of just the way people's faces were brought in. There were things that I noticed that as a lay person that I was kind of surprised and, and um, uh, I thought that was great. That last scene with just like the tension like builds up into this last scene, um, just really well done. And yeah, there's a little bit of silliness, but and, and again, you know, some cringe stuff. But it's it's just um, it's a good movie. I think it's worth watching.
0: We you know people can go watch this, and if they're done with that and they want to watch more, uh, or they want to read more about the content uh, in the in Notorious. I have a few recommendations here. Maybe you've got a couple of things, but uh, I would recommend one, and this is really to you as well because you haven't seen you know, any other Hitchcock movies. I recommend a movie that's now on Amazon Prime. I'm going to watch it probably this weekend uh, called Rear Window. It's one of my favorite movies. There's recently, I don't, I guess I'm too old now to say recently, but it was remade not too long ago, uh, but it stars Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. And it's a story about a guy who's like a, a journalist and he breaks his leg. So maybe it's really relevant to you. Um, he breaks his leg, he breaks a bone and is kind of stuck at home and he uses like a window and he looks out his window with a telescope and sees like crime that he thinks is being committed, like a murder and he doesn't know what to do with this information. He can't do anything about it because he's stuck uh, in a bed um, with his you know broken foot and broken leg but it's a really fascinating kind of look um, in, in the world about kind of what's happening and it's very suspenseful so I, I recommend that one quite a bit. I recommend another movie from 1978 called The Boys from Brazil, which stars Gregory Peck from On the Beach, uh, as well as Laurence Olivier and a young Steve Guttenberg, uh, who people may know from, you know, Plix Academy, but also The Day After, another famous nuke movie. And it's about um, uncovering, uh, you know, a group of ex-Nazis hanging out in Brazil. Good movie. And finally, uh, this isn't really a book or anything, uh, or a movie, but, you know, Invest and some uranium glass. They're really, really cool stuff. Um, It's stuff that I'll I'll post a bunch of links about, and I've given Gabe, I think, a a glass of uranium glass. um, Anyone that's a guest on the podcast, um, I bought a bunch at an auction in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, last two years ago, and it's like cocktail glasses. I have all kinds. I have have butter dishes. I gave my mom a butter dish um, when she visited recently, but it's glass that was made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, using uranium filings, um, again, it's metal ore, and they grind it down and they put it into the sand that they use to make the glass. And they also add a little bit of green tint to it so that it's green. And if you use a UV light, it'll light up. If you have a Geiger counter, it'll be slightly more radioactive in the background. It don't, They don't make it anymore because people don't think it's it's cool anymore or maybe they don't think it's safe anymore. But it's it's really interesting. I think it's fascinating because I've had I have had wine out of a uranium glass.
1: And it's been fun. <laughs> Did it taste so much better than regular wine?
0: It tasted dusty because I hadn't washed the glass cut.
1: Oh, well oh no. But
0: one of these days, uh, when I get to a chance to kinda of get together with Gabe again in person, we hang out here every once in a while, but we don't uh drink wine uh anymore. Um we'll get together and maybe you can have some wine, maybe a port out of some uranium glass. We'll get together and do that. But check this stuff out. It's really fascinating stuff. And you can find it, it's not so rare that it's, uh, you know, super expensive. It, 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 there, there are versions of it around.
1: Here's a question. Would you feel comfortable having your, um, like, one-and-a-half-ish-year-old child drink out of uranium glass? I,
0: I would, because uranium glass is not more radioactive than concrete. It's, right. it's more radioactive cool. than the than background, but it's it's not, you know, I wouldn't, the thing that's dangerous about uranium glass is if it breaks and it turns to a, a, a fine powder and you get that in your lungs because it's
1: toxic so he needs like a uranium sippy cup
0: exactly oh i gotta um, while you tell your recommendations i'm gonna look <laughs> on ebay
1: so my um yeah i think uh, i mentioned this before um another uh another great movie with uh ingrid bergman um casablanca um nothing to do with nukes or anything but just throw out another old movie that i like um I'd also recommend an article that I saw when we were researching the episode on NPR about how there are people who apparently look at uh, radioactive decay in wine bottles to date the wine bottles and uh, make sure that you know, they're of the proper age and everything like that and catch fraud. So um, Tim, you can throw a link up in the, uh, in the show notes, but I thought that was a pretty cool read, kind of tangential to, uh, to our thing here. We talked, about, we talked about
0: that on our atomic podcast, atomic alcohol episode of our podcast.
1: Nice. Well, it's coming. It's it's being revived. It's Lazarus coming back for this one.
0: Well, it was, we did, we did have a lot of atomic alcohol in that episode. So I don't, <laughs> I don't uh, fault you for forgetting that. Gabe, thanks so much for, for coming back on the podcast. Um, I know you're on a lot of painkillers because of your broken elbow, but we appreciate you having, uh, having you back on the show. Hope you're, hope you're feeling better. And um, you know, drink lots of milk, get those bones back together because I need you uh,
1: back on the show. This is this this show is the one thing that is giving me like <laughs> hope to recover. I need my podcasting arm back. You had to hold the microphone somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke wise or hey. Maybe you actually have a wine cellar, and you do keep some weird stuff in wine bottles uh, down there. I'm not going to judge, uh, but you can tell me why I'm wrong. A couple ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at NuclearPodcast. We're on our website, SuperCriticalPodcast.com, where I have lots of show notes, all the research that goes into each episode. I've got some other kind of fun stuff up on there. And you can email me, SuperCriticalPodcast at gmail.com. People have been sending me a number of lovely messages and questions. Once I'm done, I promise moving. I sold my house, bought another one, uh, raising a toddler who just turned 18 months. When I'm all done with all of this stuff and done moving, I'm going to be much more responsive and we're going to get a lot more episodes out. So thanks to everybody who still listening. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.